It's great to have you with us from wherever you're tuning in from. For more information about Elevate Church or to contact us, head to our website elevatechurch.me and take us wherever you go by downloading our Elevate Church AU app. We hope this message inspires and helps you to take your next steps in your journey. Hi, how are you? Now, Mark forgot to introduce me, so I thought I'd do it myself, okay? So when, when, when I introduce myself, you're going to clap and cheer, okay? So I'd like to introduce to you, our speaker today is Steve Hall. That's okay. Hey, it's great to see you, and it's great to see you back alone. It's weird seeing you so spread out, hey? It's like you all forgot to put your deodorant on this morning, so just keep back. Do not smell my underarms as I lift them up to worship. That's the good thing about uh, the whole isolation thing is you didn't have to have a shower or do anything like that for a, a whole couple of weeks. It's great. I, um, I want to uh, have a chat to you today because in the isolation, we all came up with probably new things that we did. Um, and because we couldn't see our grandchildren who um, are down in a farm in Esperance, my wife um, did a very creative thing and she decided to um, ring them every Wednesday night on Zoom and, uh, and she would read them a bedtime story. Blinky Bill, three cheers for Maggie. But you see, I noticed that Maggie didn't invite me to actually read the story. Um, but if you hear this story um, or this, uh, what I'm going to tell you now, you'll probably understand why. See, when I was at Kalamunda, there was a great couple in the church. There was a lot of great couples, um, including Frank and, and Faye. But um, there was lots of great couples, and this particular couple had a couple of kids. And they invited me over one night to uh, come and have a discussion about some plans we were working on. That's good. So I went there about 6.30, and they had a couple of children, little, little tackers, um, just pre-primary. And uh, they were fun, and I was just did my usual granddaddy thing and started uh, just talking with them and looking. And it got to bedtime very soon. And of course, one of the kids said, uh, can Pastor Steve read us the story? Now, the parents reluctantly said, that's a good idea. And so I read them the story, but it was a bit of a boring story. I think, I'm not sure, but I, I, I think it was Winnie the Pooh. I'm not sure. But I started to read the story, but it was a little bit boring for me. So I tended to stretch it and become quite um, over the top with the narrative, um, you could say, and used a few little um, fun things that were scary and things that were exciting and things that were sad. And, and the kids got so much into this story that the parents decided that maybe it was time to pull the plug. So they did, and they put the children to bed. Unfortunately, the children did stay awake a long time. Um, and then on Sunday morning, when we gathered together again, I recognised that the kids came up and started telling me more about this story. So it obviously been going around in their heads for a while. And I want to talk to you today about your narrative. I wonder what stories have been told to you and what's the narrative that keeps you awake at night? What's the narrative that goes around in your head? What's the narrative that when you see someone it reminds you of that narrative. So we want to talk today, and Mark did an awesome, you, you need to listen to the service of last week because it spoke to me um, and started this theme, which was called How Not to Be Your Worst Enemy. 
and did a great job on that. And he had a look at pay attention to your tension. But today I want to have a look at the concept of pay attention to your narrative. What's the narrative that's been going on in your head? And if you're like me, you've probably got a few voices that go on in your head, maybe one, possibly two. If you've got four, then you need to see our prayer team. Um, But you've probably got a few things that are constantly going on inside your head. And I want to suggest that they have potential to impact your decision-making and who you are. See, a guy named Martin Luther King Jr., who you may have known, said this. He said, problems developed when people internalize conversations that restrain them to a narrow description of self. Just think about that for a moment. These stories are experienced um, as oppressive because they limit the perception of available choices. What's the narrative that's restricting the potential of different choices that are available to you? Because of the narrative, because of those words. Could your narrative be your worst enemy that's holding us back? So I want us to pay attention to your narrative because you've got some. Let me suggest some that might be maybe have been spoken into your life. I went to a psychologist, a counsellor, and she asked me some questions. And she said, so who told you that? Who told you those thoughts? Who was it who spoke those narratives into you? Like, you're no good. You're a failure. I can't do this. Maybe comments that, that impact that I'm going to mess up here. Or I could never do that. These narratives that go round in our head and these voices. Or maybe they're the narratives about what you perceive about other things. Christians are all like this. Church is just... Baptists are... Well, that's pretty true. No, uh, Church of Christ, Catholics are. Muslims are like this. I wonder what narrative we have actually taken on and implanted into our minds that determine some of our decision-making. And I, and I get you to start thinking about some of those narratives even today. Yesterday, I, I beat myself up a number of times as I was trying to get a job done that kept on making mistakes. And at one stage, I'm calling myself names because I just made a silly mistake. And they're a narrative that start to become who we are. So I want to ask you to challenge yourself today about what's the narrative that's impacting who you are. Because you see, the problem with the narrative is that sometimes they're hard to change. In England, during World War II, the government under the, the, we mentioned Winston Churchill last week, he didn't make this quote, right? But some people have given it to him. But his government decided in the time of war, we need to change the narrative. So they put all these posters up in the subways, lots of these different posters. And there was one particular one that has become famous that actually never made it out. It was actually found later on in a, um, in a box, in a bookshop at the bottom of this box. And you've probably seen it. It says, keep calm and carry on. I can imagine Winston Churchill saying that. Keep calm and carry on. Um, but this, this one here is, you've seen it on cups. You've probably seen it on posters. I actually gave it to my receptionist a little while ago when she was having problems with a certain um, 
a service provider that uh, constantly was driving her crazy when she rang them up for help. So I bought her a cup and said, drink that every time that you are on the phone. Keep calm and carry on. What five words could change your narrative? What poster do I need to put in my head that I constantly look at as I go down the subways of my mind and actually see a comment, a statement that may actually change my narrative? But five words, it's actually hard to change that narrative. If, in fact, if you actually have a look on your TED Talks, which you probably enjoy watching, there's a particular TED Talk by a guy called um, Destin, uh, Destin Selin. And Destin does this TED Talk on what he calls the backwards brain bike. Anyone seen it? It's, it, have a look at it. It's fun. He decided, he does this as a seminar. He got a bike and he got an a, a, um, engineer to change it so that when you turned the bike to the right, the wheels turned to the left. And the idea is that could I actually change the way I think about riding? And so he thought this would be quite easy and he jumps on the bike. But every time he went to turn, turn right, the bike went left. And he couldn't quite change it. And so he would say to people at seminars, who thinks they could ride this bike? And everyone gets up there gets up there and says, okay, you can ride it 10 metres. They couldn't get one metre. And it found out that it takes up to eight months to change the way your brain has been programmed. Because it's so inbuilt. Have a look at the YouTube, the uh, TED Talk. It's quite fascinating. But psychologists now are saying it's more than just three weeks. It actually takes months to actually change the way that we think. I want to take you to a scripture that a guy by the name of Paul, that you probably know, the Apostle Paul, um, he was a man that actually changed his thinking dramatically. You may remember that he was a guy who was going around killing all the Christians. He was a good, strong, um, committed um, a Jewish man who was a uh, leader of armies and he was quite respected. And he would go around with a whole battalion, battalion and they would go and kill a whole bunch of Christians because he really believed that what they were teaching was wrong. It was heresy. That was his mindset, so much so that he was out to kill him. He wasn't just doing a job. It was in his heart. It was in his mind. Until one day he comes along and he has this encounter. He has an encounter with Jesus there on the road to Damascus. And it changed his thinking to the place where he ended up being one that was standing up and even died for his faith in Christianity. Could we have a mindset like that? You see, Paul, who was a military man, he wrote a statement to a church in Corinth. And Corinth was a community that was strongly pagan, had lots of gods, and they had lots of belief systems that were built into who they were. And here he was going to talk about the love of Jesus. Here he was to talk about a, a man who became God in the flesh. And he's talking to a whole mindset, a religious order that was anti this type of thinking. So what does he say? What does he say to change their concepts and their mindsets? This is what he says in 2 Corinthians 10, 3. And hear the military talk in here. He says, for though we live in the world, we do not wage war. Interesting. 
This is war. You've heard that a few times, right? But there's a war happening in our minds sometimes. This mindset, this narrative can be a war if, we, if it's controlling who we are. And he says, we don't fight this with the same weapons. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power. Underline divine power. This is, this is not just you trying to change your thinking. Here's something that's powerful, something that's divine, something that is greater than what you and I can actually do ourselves. It says divine power. What to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretense that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. In other words, these narratives which have determined who we are, we can actually demolish those arguments. How? We take captive. Military again. We're going to capture all these thoughts, every thought, and what? Make it obedient to Christ. What if I could listen to my narrative and actually capture them and put them together and, and make them obedient unto what we understand that Jesus says? Because what Jesus says to you is different to the narrative that the world would say to you. The, 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 the narrative of Jesus is so different that people struggled with actually listening and even believing it. But what if you could take your thoughts, make them captive, and bring them under the authority of Jesus? I want to give you an example today, a story in the Old Testament that was a good story for me because it helps me understand what that could look like. And it's a story if we go to Genesis 15, right at the beginning of the Bible. And in this, in this story is a guy called Abram who later on became Abraham. Abram was an amazing man because he was in a, um, a country called Haran, Harar, which uh, sounds like Harar. So he was there and he was doing pretty good. And he decided that uh, God was speaking to him that he would pack up everything. He would leave mum and dad. He would leave his country and he would travel because God was going to open up a whole new world a whole new opportunities, that God was going to form him into the people group that would be known as God's people group. Pretty amazing. And so he leaves his country and he packs up everything and him and his nephew Lot, because he decides to tag along, they go together and they end up in Canaan and, and uh, um, they keep on growing. There's a few things that happen on the way, a couple of stories that are quite exciting, have a read of. Genesis 15, or actually Genesis 12, 13, 14, 15. It's great stories. But here we have them, and they're, they're, they, have, they go to one particular place. They get kicked out by Pharaoh in Egypt. They get kicked out of there because, of, I won't tell you that story, but that's a great story. Um, and Pharaoh got a little bit scared about Abram. And then they come to this land. And because they've grown so big now, Lot and Abram have this discussion. We can't live in the same paddock anymore. We're going to have to spread out. So you choose part of the land and I'll choose part of the land. So Lot says, I like that Jordan River area, that whole valley. I'll take that. So Abram says, okay, that's all good with me. You go for it. And hence Abram then takes off um, and he goes, so, sorry, we've got uh, 
the place where Lot decides to live is Sodom. And you've probably heard the story, Sodom and Gomorrah. And he goes and lives in Sodom. Well, what happens there is in Sodom, the, there's a whole, all the armies, the countries around start to, get, start to have a bit of military force and they attack Sodom. And Abraham, or Abram, hears about it. And he knows that Lot's in trouble. And he knows that his family and everything he's got is in trouble. So he inquires of the Lord and he is allowed to go down and take his army to fight against those that are attacking Sodom. Hence they win. And they push it back and the king of Sodom is really happy about Abram, offers him lots of stuff. He said, no, I can't take that from you because it's not, it's not godly, it's not right. And so he didn't take that. So this man has been just in, in a victory. He's just seen a whole army disappear before his eyes because God has blessed him. And then we go to Genesis 15. So read in context, read this. Genesis 15, 1 to 6. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. The man's just had this great victory. You and I have probably had some great victories. And yet we still come away doubting ourselves. And that narrative in our mind can still build fear within us. I am your shield. You are very, um, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham, or Abram said, You have given me no children. So a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars. If needed, you can count them. Sorry, if indeed, you can count them. If indeed, you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord. And, it credited to, um, and he accredited, credited to him as righteousness. Abram, this great man, great victory. His first narrative is the narrative of fear. Can I tell you that fear is a powerful narrative? It binds you up. The fear of things that haven't happened yet. The fear of things that, that, um, that have happened and you're scared or fearful or that might happen again. The fear of losing something. The fear of, of what people think. Fear is a powerful thing. And Abram is a guy who's got the narrative of fear going on in his head. And listen to the new narrative that God or the Lord puts into him. And this is the new narrative. I am your shield. I am. Am. This word I am, I repeat it over and over and over again in the Bible. I am your shield. See, fear is replaced by this shield. You will notice that Paul talks about the shield in Galatians 5 when he's talking to the church in, Gal um, in Galatia. And he says to them, you know, your shield is part of the armor. This shield, it's called the shield of faith that I believe in God and that shield is going to protect you from the fiery darts of the enemy. 
that want to take you down with fear. I've got a shield. He says, I'm going to protect you. I'm your protection. That narrative of fear, capture it. And then hear the voice of the Father God who says, I am your shield. Tozer, the great A.W. Tozer, wrote a book on the knowledge of God. He said this, The man who comes to a right belief about God is relieved of 10,000 temporary problems. For he sees at once that these have to do with matters which at the most cannot concern him very long. You see, here's the truth about Jesus. He said, love casts out all fear. God is love. Jesus, God in the flesh, died for you because he was God's gift of love to you. Let me tell you right now, Jesus breaks the stronghold of the narrative of fear if we capture it and bring it under obedience to him. He casts out fear. But there's another one I find. You see, Abram goes to God, but nothing's going to happen. I'm going to have to give all my inheritance to my servants. I mean, it's great. Won this battle, won that battle, got all this stuff, got all these ladies, got all these animals. And yet it's going to come to nothing when I die because there's no one. That promise you gave me, Lord, about being a big nation, where is it? Because my wife can't have kids and I'm getting old. He was worried. He was anxious about the future. Anxiety is a big thing in our society. Anxiety is huge in me. And we need to take that narrative of anxiety, that narrative that of worry, and we need to capture it and put it under some truths. Listen what the truth is. I will. I will give you a child. I will provide that need. See, Jesus said, be worried about nothing, but in everything, sink first the kingdom of God. Give that worry, give that anxiety unto Jesus. Capture it and bring it under his obedience because he says, I can do the impossible. All things are possible to those in, um, um, all things are possible. It says um, in Galatians 4, uh, sorry, in Philippians 4, 19, my favorite verse, that my God shall supply all my needs according to his riches in glory. It's a powerful verse, and I repeat it over and over again. But I want to tell you that God will provide. Can I tell you a little story? I could tell you lots of stories of God's provision for us, but this one sticks in my head. And if you're a cut them under right, you've probably heard this story, but I'm going to tell you it again because it is great. You see, what happened was my beautiful wife and I and the kids, we actually had been through some difficult turmoil times and we had started up this new started a new church down in Kelmscott and I was the youth pastor been there a year and and we were having fun the youth ministry was growing and we were seeing people come to Jesus it was awesome I loved it and uh, but we were busy on ministry and we're busy on raising children and we hadn't actually really taken time out as a family to embrace after this traumatic time we hadn't really reconnected and we had a holiday booked. We were going to go to Broome, which is a long way, 2,300 kilometers, with three young men, right, who were 13, 12 downwards. And, uh, and we were going to go to Broome. Now, we were about two or three weeks, I think it was two weeks out from going to Broome, and we'd been so busy, we hadn't even really thought how we were going to get there. Now, I had an old bomb. I had two old bombs. One was an L300, which was a really old bomb. And the other one was a 
Mazda 323, it was a, had no power steering, no air conditioning. The cars used to be like that once. Um, and we were about to uh, take off to Broome. Two weeks ago. We hadn't even thought about it. Even if the car would make it, and we were going to cram everything in this little Mazda 323 that I later on rolled, which was quite another story. So I'm preaching one Sunday night. And I'm preaching about how God knows your need before you even ask him, right? It's a great service. I, I even converted myself that night. It was so good. And I, I got home and some friends of mine came over and we were having a cup of coffee. And we're sitting having this cup of coffee and my brother rings me up. And he says, Steve, I said, G'day, Jeff. I said, Steve, what do you do when someone gives you a big gift? And I go, mate, look, some pastoral support here, but... What you've got to do is you've got to accept it because if you don't, you're going to deny the person who's given it the blessing, right? Good advice. He said, great, thanks, Steve, because I'm not the one who's been given the gift. You are. Uh, <laughs> right. He said, somebody, now this, this, dig this, right? This guy, I know he was a friend, but he didn't know our situation, really didn't know we were going to Broome, didn't know that we had a bomb, pull up a car. He's over in Melbourne. God speaks to him and says, you've got to buy Steve a new car. He sends $30,000, which is a lot of money, <clears throat> over to buy a new car. I'm sitting there. God supplies us with this finances right. to purchase a new car. Why? Because he knew my need before I even knew I had a need. And he said, I've got it all sorted, Steve. So we went out and we bought a car. We picked it up the day before we left. It was a Tarago. Hence, we nicknamed it the Tarago Blessing. And so we drove up to Broome, and it was awesome. And we're sitting in this car, driving along, and the boys are all spread out. And we just enjoyed being together in this massive car that was actually made it there and back a number of times. We did 400,000 Ks in this car um, because it was God's blessing to us. You know what? God knows your need. You don't need to worry. He knows what you're going through. It's not a surprise to him. He actually knows it. And he says, I will. Don't worry about what you're going to wear. Don't worry about that, but seek first my kingdom. Take it captive unto Jesus and give it to him. Because I know he knows exactly what you need and he will supply. And I could tell you a whole heap of those stories. In fact, one that happened a couple of weeks ago, I won't go down to it. But God does it. But there's another thing. There was a narrative of hopelessness. Nothing's going to happen. I wonder if you've got caught up in a narrative of hopelessness where you actually think, oh, I don't know, I just can't see it, I can't see any hope. I haven't got a job, I haven't got a house, I haven't got a partner, I've been trying for years, I haven't had kids. I, whatever that hopeless feeling is inside you, that the narrative keeps going over, it's never going to happen, it's never going to happen. You're too old, you're too young, you're too this, you're too that. And that narrative binds us, but it says take hold of that narrative. And this is what... Abram was invited to do. He said, go outside and have a look at the stars. Now, I love going camping. And my, last, a couple of years ago, we went to Ningaloo Station and we camped out on the beach. Um, and my grandson and granddaughter were there with us and it was fantastic. And one part of the night we went, Xavier and I went out and we were on the beach there and we, I said, let's look at those stars, mate. And I don't know if you've noticed, but when you get out of the city, those stars multiply. It's like it's a million-star hotel out there. And we're looking there, laying on the beach, looking up. And the more we looked, the more there were. 
I don't know how he counted them because he started counting them. It's like, oh, it's another one. And they, sort of, they, they just grow as you look. You see, sometimes we need to step out of this white light. We need to step out of where we're hanging around. We need to step out. It was Moses who, was, who had to step out of the campsite and go and pray in a tent outside of everybody so he could hear God. Sometimes we need to stop, be still, step out of the white light and look up and see the stars. You won't see them when you're in the tent. Well, you won't see them when there's a roof over your head. We need to step outside, lay down, and look at the awesomeness of God who says, I, I made that, and that, and that, and that, 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 that. He made them all. That's how big our God is. I want to challenge you today, that narrative that sometimes holds us back. What if we were to take it captive? And say, but my God's bigger than that. My God. You know, I don't feel loved. Let me tell you, take it captive under Jesus who said, I love you so much, I gave my life up for you. That narrative that says, I could never be forgiven. Take it to the cross and look up and see a, a God who gave his son so that you would be forgiven today. And it's done. I can never have that. Take it to a God who owns a cattle in a thousand hills, who says, I know what you need. You leave it to me. You just look at me and I'll sort out what you need. I want to just read the scripture to you in closing. Romans 12.1. So I beg you, brothers and sisters, because of the great mercy God has shown us, See, take it into the mercy God has shown us. Offer your lives as living sacrifices to him, an offering that is only for God and pleasing to him. Consider what he has done. It is only right that you should worship him in the way you should. You want to change your narrative? Get into worship. Maybe don't push a little Ryobi um, lawnmower. Get a Briggs and Stratton's a form stroker, right? But, but put a worship, put worship in your ears because worship changes your narrative. Don't change yourself to be like the people of this world, but let God change you where? Inside with a new way of thinking then you will be able to understand and accept what God wants for you. What God not wants from you, but what God wants for you. Isn't that awesome? You will be able to know what is good and pleasing to Him and what is perfect. Can I just uh, finish by a prayer? Could you, if you close your eyes, that would be cool. I just want you to just stop for a moment before we finish this. And if today you need prayer, I believe there is a prayer team. I don't know if they're available, but please make sure you get someone to pray for you today because narratives sometimes need others to pray to break them. But just stop for a moment and ask God just to show you. David did this, King David. God, show me the narrative. Show me what's in my heart. Show me my thinking. Help me understand my thinking. God, what's the narrative in me? And when you take hold of that narrative, now take that, that sense of unbelief, that sense, I have to do this daily. Take it and give it to Jesus. Take it to the cross and look into his face 
and say, Jesus, now speak life into my circumstance instead of the death that others are speaking into it. And I pray, Father, that you will just bubble up in me that sense of worship as you change my narrative to fit your narrative. Amen. We really hope you got a lot out of this message. If you live in the Perth area, we'd love you to join us for one of our live experiences. For times and directions, as well as information about our great Elevate Kids and Elevate Youth environments, head to our website, elevatechurch.me. And to partner with us to reach more people by giving financially, head to our website, elevatechurch.me, and also download our Elevate Church AU app.